0: Hello and welcome to Technology and Space, where we talk about the science, technology, history, and business of space exploration and commercialization. I'm Chris Alvarez and thank you for listening. I'm speaking with Dr. Barbara Scalvini, author of Aristotle from Antiquity to the Modern Era, published by Giles, February 23rd, 2021. Thank you for speaking with me. It's a pleasure. So first, um, how did you get into studying this subject and, and writing a book on it
1: um a bit by chance and mm. a bit by training i think that's quite common mm-hmm. uh, i'm an antiquarian bookseller mm-hmm. um and uh, as it's common in the trade we hardly ever specialize in one very specific field we tend to cover a variety of fields but then each antiquarian bookseller has their own i suppose pets mm. and one of my <laughs> uh, has always been the little scribbles and annotations that you find in the margins of printed books. Mm-hmm. Stuff that, you know, my own teacher would never ever had permitted to me. <laughs> but, <laughs> but which in the 16th, 17th, eighteenth century were actually quite common. Um, mm-hmm. I like trying to understand those voices because the printed text is reproduced as many times as there are copies of the book. But those little annotations are unique to that copy. And um, I've always liked looking at those and drawing all the conclusions that I could. Mm -hmm. Um, And so um, I guess that combined combined with my training in in the classical languages, Latin and Greek, um, really kind of naturally drew me to take an interest in annotated Aristotle's. Aristotle is one of the most read authors in the the history of humanity. So there are quite a lot of annotated books um, of Aristotle. Mm -hmm. And then one day, um, Marty Gross, who had been a customer of Quaritch for several years before, came into the shop just as I was looking at a very special annotated Aristotle. Mm -hmm. Um, And he wanted to know all about it. I explained why I was growing very very fond of that very new acquisition Mm -hmm. and he absolutely clicked in with the potential interest the potential relevance of this subject Mm -hmm. and from then on we started a a partnership a cooperation um Marty decided to collect specifically in this uh, sector collection is really so much more interesting I guess if it's focused And Marty's focus was sharp, straight from the beginning. Mm -hmm. He moved from generally collecting philosophy and history of science to collecting specifically annotated Aristotle. And uh, we've been working since together for about a decade. Mm -hmm. Um, Until then, until when Marty was invited to create an exhibition of his collection, by the New York Historical Society, which is what's going to happen next September. And that's, and
0: that's how the book was born. Ah, okay. All right, so tell me then, um, what does the book cover? I saw in the blurb, you know, it talks about how the ideas of Aristotle have been transmitted over time, you know, in this manner, or discussed and transmitted. So t- tell me what you describe in the book.
1: We wanted to convey the immense variety of the ways in which this body of thought has been transmitted to us. It's nothing that one set of writings will convey. These, all these objects tell so many different stories. There is the stories of the translations that have been made of the text of Aristotle. Yeah. There's the story of the commentaries about it. There's the story of the University lectures of the monastery um, copying out of uh, the sort of early scientists wrestling with a, a model of the universe that didn't quite match with modern science discoveries. So, all these encounters uh, between Aristotle and more and more modern readers produced almost like chemical reactions that are tangibly present in these. You know, very material objects. So that's, that's what we try and cover. We try and cover the story of this handing down of this body or thought mm-hmm. through physical artifacts that people can actually handle and without much risk, actually.
0: Mm-hmm. So does the book, um, is it sort of a, a, a reference of what exists or how much does it discuss the thoughts of, of the people writing, you know, In the margins?
1: It cannot be a reference of what exists. Mm -hmm. Um, There is a body of reference on all the printed editions that have been produced um, of Aristotle's works throughout the world. And it's a really impressive term with no pictures. (laughs) What we wanted to do was a meaningful selection Mm -hmm. of types, of genre, of cases, of Instances. It was more um, the attempt to open windows into particular journeys that this text or these texts have made. It doesn't have any, any um, ambition to be uh, complete, any chance. It's 40 books that I'm sure that at any point in the world one could make a census of uh, thousands and thousands of understated Aristotle's. So the aim was not completion, the aim was really. Exemplification and bring things to life, trying to, um, accentuate the, the specific importance of individual copies with individual annotations, not, you know, any copy of any edition. Mm-hmm.
0: So, so focusing both on what you include in the book and maybe also what you're aware of. Um, how much as far as what was annotated, how would you break it down between Philosophers who did that, scientists, um, you know, non expert individuals, you know, what do you see? What sort of trend?
1: I would say that 90% of these annotations were penned by very highly trained logicians and, um, scientists. I mean, in the modern day, we, we uh, identify the scientist with uh, someone with a, a very specific aim in, in their research and a very specific method. Mm-hmm. Um, in the early modern era, to be a scientist and to be a philosopher was almost the same thing. Mm-hmm. At the point of the um, birth of early modern science, the developing of a... Scientific method, method of thinking involves philosophy as well as science. So I think we see here profiles of university professors of uh, very highly trained clerical theologians and philosophers, very, very involved people in ethics, in logics, in physics, who try and really wrestle what they can from Aristotle and, and see how that matches up with what they experience in their own context, in their own culture.
0: Mm -hmm. Are these texts, do they simply go from person to person in a linear manner, or is there any, you know, were they shared among people, you know, and maybe others added notes to someone's notes, or is it just singular in a sense?
1: It's, um, it's funny. It's always a different story. Hmm. Sometimes the book doesn't bear any evidence of any, but one reader. And you can see that the handwriting that kind of changes through the ages, but, uh, and you can see this man reread this book, you know, five times in 20 years. Uh, and some other times you can see distinct sets of annotations made by one or the other. The thing is, uh, as I said, now we disregard marginalia, but at the time there were thought to be improvements on the text. Mm. Uh, you know, they could, uh, They could embody discussion, disagreement, diagrams. And so a new owner, a new reader would want to add their own set of thoughts next to what was already there. Mm -hmm. The typology is just very varied.
0: Mm -hmm. Did you find instances where, and again, my, the focus on my questions is sort of the development and transmission of ideas, you know, to grow science. did you see any instances where individuals wrote thoughts that maybe couldn't be shared for some reason? You know, maybe they crossed with religion or or popular opinion. Did you see any hidden, you know, hidden information?
1: There is a a really lovely, one of the lovely items that we have in the exhibition and and in the book is actually written in microscript, um, unbelievably small. Unbelievably small. Um, it was written at the end of 17th century and the microscript is really, uh, smaller and smaller when, whenever the commentator has to contend to the, contend with the uh, difficulties of matching Aristotle up with the Copernican revolution Hmm. up to, up to Copernicus, well, and Copernicus and then Galileo with his actual you know observations of the celestial phenomenon mm-hmm. he believed the world believed and Aristotle believed that the earth was at the center of this cosmos and mankind therefore was at the center of this the, the, the um, apex of creation mm-hmm. But then you know with the Copernican revolution, Really these things begin to be questioned very seriously. Mm-hmm. How come if the stars are fixed, how come we have comets? so this man who records the actual passing of a comet in the in the seventeenth century does it in microscript, thinking, Oh God, I'd better this quite it does disturb me. And you know, what if someone opens my notebook, I left it on the table, I'd better write it really. Mm-hmm.
0: Hmm. I'm speaking with Barbara Scalvini, co-author of Aristotle, From Antiquity to the Modern Age. You can find more information about the book on the Giles website. If you like this episode of Technology and Space so far, please tap the like button and space dock the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or to get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com. If you want interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out fullcontactnerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. What what languages are these texts in and what languages are the notes in, the marginalia? Uh,
1: the great majority in Latin. Mm-hmm. Um, that's because that's the, the, the language in which uh, Aristotle was divulged for the greatest part in, in print as well. Um, but actually we have many commentaries in, um, or actual notes, I'd rather say, the notes in uh, the vernaculars, um, you know, early modern languages. The um, main um, monument edition in the original Greek was um, printed in Venice by Aldus Manutius, the great humanist printer, Mm -hmm. between 1495 and 1498. Before that, and for a long time, uh, in a parallel way, after that, Latin was the main language. So one has to contend with those difficulties, as well as the difficulty of the abbreviations of the scripts. Most mm-hmm. um, words were abbreviated spaces a very precious commodity in the early books.
0: Mm-hmm. So which uh, ver- vernacular languages um, are we talking about?
1: Italian, French, English, some German, mm-hmm. most. I'm Spanish.
0: Okay. And, um, how often do you discover, or does the community discover new texts that maybe were hidden in attics or, or stored somewhere that people weren't aware of? Or is it mostly, has most of it been found and it's just circulating among collectors and museums and that sort of thing?
1: Um, I'd say, the sensibilities of, the, of collecting and of studying these artifacts changes in time. So, um, 50 years ago, we wouldn't have paid attention to annotated books at all. So they would have roamed in the market, picked up by the odd nerd who would just go and, <laughs> you know, want <laughs> to read them. Now I think that, you know, the academic community has really built up a consensus that all these little notes in the margins tell us so much about our history mm-hmm. um, that, you know, even librarians of great special collections go out of their way to, to collect them. And so these artefacts have always gone around. Now we are looking for them with a more specific intention. Mm-hmm. I have to say Aristotle is so easy to find in annotated form because it was a, a school text. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't have gotten any degree without getting through Aristotle's logics and metaphysics at the very least. Mm-hmm. So they're not all of them rare. So with Marty Gross, uh, what we've been trying to do is to really carefully select. Marty doesn't collect any old annotated Aristotle. We want for the annotations to be really quite special and meaningful and relevant and, uh, you know, original, or mm-hmm. at least exemplary Mm
0: -hmm. um what so what years does does your collection or what you focus on in the book what what year what time span does it cover
1: um notionally any any arc um we don't really discard anything uh, a priori but uh, i'd say the earliest artifact we have is uh from the 1250s Mm-hmm. It's a manuscript, entirely written in manuscript, mid 13th century. Um, it's a very, very early commentary on the physics. Um, it's very interesting to see a 13th century mind at work with the concept. Um, and then we carry on into modernity. We tend to stop round about the end of the 18th century.
0: Mm-hmm. Can you repeat what you said about the 13th century thinker you cut off there? And I wanted to catch, get your thought that you were saying.
1: I was just remarking that um, uh, it's uh, very interesting to uh, see the thoughts, see the annotations of a 13th century writer on notions of time and space. What is time? What is space? Can I describe them? Can I not? In what relation are they? So even a single leaf from the 13th century is a source of unending interest.
0: Mm. What about, um, how, how, this is sort of a, a little bit of a tangent. How about the ink or whatever they use to write in? Does it, does it fade? You know, is it, you know, what's the quality of, of the writings?
1: Um, as varied as, um, we have copies really as well as it's very varied Uh, I have to say ink um, uh, produced in the early modern era tends to stay in the early 19th century late 19th century and uh, early 20th century there was this habit of uh, gently washing books when they were very precious because as I said people weren't really keen on annotations so they would wash them and make them really really faint which is, point me mean, now when you see that. Um, still make them out. It's, uh, but it's hard. But a book that has not been treated, that's been just paradoxically neglected will be as, as fresh as it was when, when it came out.
0: Are there, um, what, what modern techniques are there to bring up writing that's faded or been washed away? Do you have imaging equipment that you use?
1: I have to say, in all the books I've handled, I've only ever used naked eye or um or a simple magnifying glass in the case of the microscript that was mentioning earlier mm-hmm. um i I must say that the main difficulty is really the paleography, the reading of the script and the interpreting of the abbreviations mm-hmm. rather than the the fading of the
0: ink okay um what uh are you able to sort of discern any major jumps, you know, with the span of time looking at the notes, did you discern any major jumps in anything like thinking approaches? Um, you mentioned the, the Copernicus, you know, the time of Copernicus, but, um, how about anything else that jumps out as a, as a big shift?
1: I'd say every, time in history there has been um, a step up or sideways or backwards in logic um, as well as physics logic uh, has always been um, very influenced by aristotle's thought because aristotle was the first one who conceived uh, of concepts as being um, organized into categories and for reasoning, or correct reasoning, to depend very much on the interactions that we make happen between these categories. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in uh, the uh, scholastic era in the Middle Ages, in Thomas Aquinas, when very intricate logic was um, hammered out, that's when Aristotle came into play, that's when they discussed the ins and outs of his syllogism, the invention of syllogism. Mm-hmm. And again, when Leibniz, for example, decided that actually, what if we turned words into numbers, and we uh, started um, a sort of logic applied to numbers and 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 make calculations? So at that point, Leibniz really interrogated the structures underlying Aristotle's thought. Mm-hmm. And and why not now? Artificial intelligence departments all over the world are still interrogating Aristotle's organization of, of logic mm-hmm. uh, for the construction of the future.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. You, um, I was going to ask how many of the notes were mathematical formulas versus, you know, script. It, you sort of answered a, that there, but can you expand on it a little? A
1: lot of it is wordy as opposed to numbery. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a lot more wordy than numbery, but um a modern eye can see that a lot of this wordy bit only represents things that now are conceptualized in a numerical form. Um, logical structures might have been presented in diagrams with words, and now we would simply substitute numbers to, to those words. Mm-hmm. The book that Marty Gross fell in love with when he came to Quaritch and, and, and that's how he started the collection was full of Diagrams. And that's probably what he found arresting. Mm-hmm. That book had been annotated in the margin. It was the Aristotle commentary on Aristotle's physics. Well, not his physics, but one of his works on physics mm-hmm. and had been annotated by Galileo's teacher. And so to think that Galileo's teacher is drawing diagrams reflecting on, you know, what we now call gravity, you know, the weight, the fall, the speed. The acceleration. He, he was writing down diagrams and words, Hmm. not numbers, but still considering these concepts very deeply and very likely passing them on to Galileo in the classroom.
0: Hmm. Yeah. I'm not surprised he fell in love when he saw that. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's pretty awesome. So what about, um, do you see any, any kind of any shifts whatsoever, um, when the printing press um is starting to be used. Um any shift in the types of books, the types of notes, the types of writing, anything.
1: With with the introduction of the printing press, um the corpus of Aristotle's work then becomes identified with a specific set of words that hmm. get reproduced edition after edition. Yes of course, editions will vary slightly, but actually um what the printing press achieved was the consolidating of the canon of his works and also the simultaneous um, spread of this work um, across Europe at the time and then, and then across the Western world later on. Um, imagine being able to produce 2,000 copies of exactly the same thing mm-hmm. um, within days, uh, a feat that so many, many, many scribes would have uh, had to achieve over months and months with so many errors, so many mistakes, so many peculiarities.
0: In a sense, what you're describing has both, um, pros and cons. The con being, it sounds like in the past before the printing press, you might have more of a diversity of sort of expression of Aristotle's writings. Whereas now it's sort of, as you said, it's, it's sort of solidified into a structure where people might not Try as much, you know, h- higher level scientists, logicians, whatnot may, may dig deeper into what the words mean. But in a sense, you also might have a group of people who just see that as, as canon. Like that's what he said. You know, nothing else before is correct. You see what I'm saying? People get in a mindset. I-
1: Yes, um I see what you mean, but I um, I don't think that's necessarily what happened. Mm-hmm. I think the sense of Aristotle being the philosopher, that's what he was called. Yeah. You know, no one else, a philosopher. That sense was very very ingrained throughout you know, western culture in the very early centuries you know, from the middle ages when printing press was just not available. Mm-hmm. He was the authority. Challenging a text that was in manuscript form or in printed form was always going to be daunting. That that was not, that really wasn't the case. And let's not forget that the annotations on the side are the case both in manuscripts and in the printed texts. Mm-hmm. I would say the uh, the enterprise of printing these books, um, undertaken by the early printers, who were very fine philologists, was um an endeavour of purification. Imagine having even just a single page of text. You ask hun- a hundred of your friends to copy it out for you, or, or even taken take dictation. Mm. By taking dictation from you, they are to write it down you will end up, very likely, with a hundred different things, (laughs) all of which will have various mistakes. Some of them will be common, some of them will be unique. And um, so imagine this multiplied by the thousands of pages the corpus aristotelicus implies. The endeavour of the printers, of the early printers, was to try and make sense of this multitude of uh, versions by comparing them, understanding, oh, hang on, this must have been a mistake because actually this other section of the uh, tradition of the manuscript uh, mm-hmm. collection does not have it and it doesn't make much sense. So actually, the editing done by the printers has been a very, very precious uh, improvement.
0: Hmm. Do you know if um, the printers, you know, early printers, were they scientists or did they um, engage scientists to help them figure this out?
1: um again they employed um very highly trained academics we know this for sure uh regarding Aldus manutius who employed the finest academics of his age but we can't necessarily describe them as scientists the way we we describe scientists these days these people will have been super trained in their latin in their greek in their logic Mm. and in their manipulation of this, um, the quest of, of, uh, knowledge.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, that's, yeah. I, I, scientist was probably the wrong term to use. I think you've described it better than I did as far as what I was trying to get at. So what about differences within different co- texts that come from different European countries? Um, I think I sort of asked this question in, in a different form, but did you see? Any big differences? And again, I'm thinking in terms of religion, the effect religion had on what, what people could discuss and talk about and and get into. Did you see any, any differences based on that nation or, or religion?
1: I was expecting, you know, pleased with my own, you know, history degree. I was expecting to see, um, a more passive, um, reception of Aristotle in Catholic countries and uh, a more questioning um, attitude in uh, Protestant countries, for example. But that was just not the case. Um, I have to say, the material evidence really defies our construct and really reveals critical minds at work under any circumstances with a liberty that these days we possibly struggle to really guarantee each Mm. other
0: in our societies hmm interesting um and uh what what uh what would you say in your what you cover in the book who who would who's who is the most obscure um among those who wrote notes and who is the most famous um among the texts you you cover
1: the famous ones are easy because they are people like you know Galileo's teacher Mm -hmm. no one really remembers his name other than a few of us uh Francesco Buonamici Mm -hmm. but his role as uh Galileo's teacher really projects him on um, on the the VIP plan and then we have a physician to a French king again a physician to a French king commenting on the composition of colors is is just a really interesting um, witness to read. Mm-hmm. And, um, we have, um, James Martin, a Scottish philosopher whose writings have been completely or not completely, but largely lost. And now here we have the notes that one of his students took at his lectures. So it's almost like hearing his voice. Mm-hmm. We have. Uh, the texts of uh, Robert Rostest, who was the first Chancellor of the University of Oxford. And then the little little ones, the obscure ones, so obscure that we can't even name them. But we can glean from what they write. Oh, this might have been a Jesuit. Look at this little symbol that he writes here. Or um, this chap probably from France, because the writing, the handwriting, is very similar to, I don't know, 17th century, other examples of 17th century French writing. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of them are anonymous, um, but by no means less vocal.
0: Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Barbara Scalvini, co-author of Aristotle, From Antiquity to the Modern Age. You can find more information about the book on the Giles website. If you like this episode of Technology and Space so far, please tap the like button and space dock the subscribe button. If you want more interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or to get daily space and science book suggestions, check out technologyandspace.com. If you want interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people, or daily book suggestions in sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, check out FullContactNerd.com and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. All of my social media links are listed at the end of this episode. Now back to the podcast. So was there a? It sounds like there wasn't the habit of sometimes people say, you know, write in their books property of. Did you have much of that?
1: Well, you know, actually, they did. They did. Some Mm. of them did, and uh, Francesco Bonamici Galileo's teacher did. Mm -hmm. But, and he did it on the on the title page at the bottom of the title page. He wrote his name, but he wrote it in Greek characters, and so so hmm. so many years in the far in the past few decades, no one had bothered spotting the Greek transliteration of Francesco Bonamici and that's how we acquired acquired it at auction, thinking, oh, that's interesting.
0: <laughs> hmm. That is interesting. How about the use of did you see much of the use of how should I put it? Sort of uh as with a note, an abbreviated note or full notes you know, a question mark or exclamation point, like something like that to express a thought about what they were writing, you know, or underlines Absolutely. or, you know.
1: Absolutely. The typologies of all these additions, manuscript additions to an existing text are so varied. You have manicules, which is like this little hand, in the shape of a real hand like this. Mm-hmm indicating a bit of text with or with underlining. And if you look at all the manicures, you basically will see what mattered to that reader and what didn't matter to that reader, which is almost as indicative, or if, if not exactly as indicative. Mm-hmm. Um, there are um ways of kind of drawing a line on the side and then writing in Latin, no, rubbish, or or nonsense, things like that. And it really brings brings the voice to life.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. So let me turn to um, how you did the research for this book. You've already described the steps you've taken to, to put it together. Um, what else did you do that maybe you haven't mentioned um, to, to complete the book, the research for the book?
1: Um, it's important to, to say that this book, very much like all this um endeavour has been a very very close partnership so marty gross who is the collector behind this exhibition mm. um his input his questions his personal uh research as a as a modern day man who's into science um the, his contribution has been absolutely major in all this mm. it's um really is a book that's been written by several hands and by no means the author, even if I do Peter, but, you know, it really isn't my book. It's um, something that's been born out of a conversation uh, for about a decade. Mm -hmm. And uh, Ben Morrison from the University of Princeton provides um, a really clarifying introduction and very vibrant and funny introduction to the general principles of the thought of Aristotle because not many of us now bother to look it up mm-hmm.
0: what other um if someone were to pursue this sort of thing with another ancient or popular philosopher who who else out there has tons of work with with notes and margins that that people could get into no one no one no okay okay i thought maybe <laughs> i was thinking perhaps plato and i don't mean just sciences but i was thinking yeah. maybe plato but yeah but yeah
1: I, you know, it's it's my passion, and there was nothing I wanted more than have than having a, a twin thing, Aristotle and Plato, because you know that there's this saying around that the whole of history of philosophy is only a commentary on the works of Aristotle and Plato. Now, I don't think I subscribe to that entirely, but I kind of assumed, again, in my preconceptions, that Plato would have been as as debated as Aristotle was. And, and he was conceptually, but interestingly, not materially, not, not nearly, not, not by a factor of, you know, not, not a, a tenth, not a twentieth, not a a hundredth, I would say. Hmm. There isn't, there isn't another Plato exhibition.
0: Hmm. Interesting. Um, so what part of this whole process putting the book together, what, what part was most enjoyable for you? It's
1: always, always when a book I've ordered arrives and I open it and I start, maybe after five, six hours, when, when the familiarity with the hand kicks in Mm -hmm. and uh, I begin to read without having to, you know, struggle and curse every step. (laughs) Um, when, when that voice comes to life and I can almost, almost imagine that person, Mm -hmm. um, it's a, it's a very private, um, sort of satisfaction. And then the other part is, is the sharing. Um, I can't wait for these books to be actually exhibited. Mm-hmm.
0: What, uh, what are some of the steps you take to, um, to protect these, these old books when you get them? You know, what, what, you know, that's a book, uh, uh, an antiquarian question there for you.
1: <laughs> it's, you'll be surprised at how sturdy these artifacts are. Mm-hmm. You have to really want to damage them, um, if, if you want to damage them. If, mm-hmm. You know, so long as your your rooms are reasonably, you know, safe from big major, major humidity mm-hmm. or major dryness,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, there is almost nothing that will will damage these books. They were made to be handled, and they were made mm-hmm. to last centuries
0: hmm well, what materials are are they made of? I guess I can assume that but but what describes sort who of are the the material
1: so that uh for the most part they're made of paper mm-hmm. um and paper made out of rags so early paper was made out of rags mm-hmm. it's a very um good quality paper it will last mm-hmm. um some of them like the 13th century leaf that I described earlier um, was made out of vellum, Mm. which is uh, um, animal skin treated to absolute thinness and whiteness through a very lengthy process. Um, But I mean, if you reflect that in order to have uh, this size page out of vellum, you might have needed a whole sheep Mm. by the time you Cut out all the legs bits and the things that you can't use. Mm -hmm. You need the whole sheep just to get this size, uh, leaf. Mm -hmm. You will really see that every single millimeter had to be exploited. Mm -hmm. How
0: about the, uh, the covers of the book and, and the binding? What was used?
1: Again, bindings can vary. Some of them are vellum. Um, some of them are other animal skin that has been treated and then used to cover boards um, wood boards or cardboard boards and on top of this animal's skin uh, which could be calf, calf is one of the most uh, used materials mm-hmm. um, there will be decorations, there might be gilt uh, coats of arms or um, gilt little ornaments um or simply kind of blind-stamped, blind tooled blind little ornaments. Um, it may not be familiar as a concept, but when you went to buy a book in the early modern era, you wouldn't buy it with its binding. You would only buy the pages, block oh. of pages. And then you would take the pages to your own binder, favorite binder, mm. and tell him, can you please bind this quite cheaply for me? And so he would wrap it up in vellum. Oh, could you please bind this in really nice, expensive Morocco with my gilt coat of arms on top? And so it would be done on spec. So no bindings of the same work are uh, the same, very few bindings of, of the same work are actually the same. Hmm.
0: And, um, I would guess, I would hope then the pages are numbered so that the, your binder doesn't <laughs> mix up pages or no, <laughs> not,
1: not necessarily. No no um what what happened was that um the printer would print flyers, which which is like um um a group of pages, the group of pages that can be obtained by a single by folding a single sheet oh. a single large sheet of paper, then you fold it once you fold it again and you fold it again, and mm-hmm. you open it up, you print all your pages on whole back and you fold. And then you cut it around and you will have gotten, you know, eight leaves typically or 16 pages.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And then, and then the uh, printer might have put a little number, a, or, or a little letter, A, B, C, etc., mm-hmm. to mark number of choir so that the binder would know what to bind next.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, they often made mistakes. So sometimes you go, oops. I'm missing Choir B, only to find that it's been bound at the end, so it's A, it was that long.
0: Ah, ah. What about, so I'm thinking about the fact that sometimes um some of these thinkers were engaged in what we might call magic or alchemy or, you know, some of those sort of esoteric arts mixed with science. Did you find much of that in any of the books? Any kind of, anything like that in the margins? Or Not notes? much. Not
1: much, not much. But but I mean, um, I'm a very hungry um, searcher. So, you know, uh, who knows? Maybe we will. I suspect, I suspect Aristotle doesn't really lend himself too much. At least what is now established to have been Aristotle. There Mm -hmm. have been slightly esoteric works that have been attributed to him in the past. Mm -hmm. But since the 19th century have been really taken out of the corpus mm-hmm. um as far as aristotle is concerned usually you really have uh in front of you a logical scientific mind
0: mm-hmm. okay what in this work for this book uh, most surprised you what did you come across that most surprised you
1: i guess the sheer abundance mm-hmm. um i genuinely didn't know when i set out that i would have to sift through hundreds of things and I would have been spoiled for choice, really. Mm. The abundance um, and the, in a way, the universality. If I had been an Italian, Aristotelian scholar in the 16th century, instead of being an Italian in the 21st century, I would have been able to travel the known world and have had a meaningful discussion and being able to understand any counterpart in Oxford, in Paris, in Leipzig, in Coimbra, in Rome, in in a way that is so cosmopolitan, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess they they share cosmopolitan exuberance of uh, Aristotelianism.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Did you, did you were there any any of these individuals? Did they have did did they have multiple texts of Aristotle, or is it most of them had their one their one text and that's what they worked with? Any ideas
1: um, i'd say if you, if you look looking at the notes, uh, you can see that many cross reference what they read with other works that they clearly had at their disposal because they were making the mm-hmm. cross references in the, in the margins, mm-hmm. and so you can tell that most of them were able to rely on Quite well-furnished libraries, perhaps not in the privacy of, of their own home, but if they were affiliated with a university or with a, with a monastery or with a large foundation, mm-hmm. um, they would have had access to several of Aristotle's works and not just Aristotle, but uh, quite a lot of work from antiquity.
0: Mm-hmm. Did, um, any of the books that you, um, list or have in your book, did they come from as you mentioned, library collections or a- any collections that would have been open to a wider group of people,
1: many of them have um, a very early monastic provenance. Mm-hmm. So, and that's how one explains the presence of multiple annotators. You oh. uh, know, in the 18th century, uh, the dissolution of many monasteries around Europe led to the dispersal of the. Many of these monastic libraries that were considered, you know, pretty standard because they were. Um, and so uh, these books are now in circulation. Um, mm. but they do, uh, bear witness to uh, a whole community reading the same copy of the same book.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, can you remind me uh, up to what? Um, what's the most recent date? Um, the book with the most recent date. What, what date is that? What year? about?
1: Um we have up until the uh early eighteenth century.
0: Early eighteenth. Okay. Okay. Because I was gonna ask if there were any um any of these books if they had American um American uh, uh commentators in there.
1: Like, you know, I have I worked once on a parallel project not parallel project, it was a different project. Mm-hmm. Um Trying to um, find uh, as many copies as possible of books that had belonged to jo- Thomas Jefferson, hmm. and that this uh, search for Aristotle in the libraries of the founding fathers, especially founding fathers who did have a sensibility for the classic mm-hmm. and who did have um, open accounts with many European booksellers, it's very difficult to pinpoint specific copies of specific Aristotle's works. You will find plenty of references to Aristotle in many of the founding fathers' writers. And one of my projects for the future is to hunt them down. Mm-hmm. But what is difficult in, in that instance is to match them up with um, material evidence of it. So I suspect most of these quotes were secondary. They were quoted from other works, you know, mm. synthesis or you know, general um, compendia of ancient philosophy. Uh. But uh, I don't really want to. I don't want to speak too early because that's one of the directions I would love to explore. Mm-hmm.
0: What uh, was there a particular? And obviously, there there are going to be all kinds of gaps in information that you have access to. But was there a particular question as you put this book together? A particular question. That you really wanted to get an answer for and did, or maybe it's still something you'd really like to know or understand.
1: I think the, the outstanding question is, uh, how it's almost like a chemical reaction. What was the reaction between this text and this person and their context? I guess it's a historical interest rather than, um, theoretical interest. Mm-hmm. I think. You know, in theoretical terms, in many fields of our knowledge Mm -hmm. have acquired a distilled notion of what Aristotle thought. What we haven't really acquired yet is a sense of how we got here. And so I guess the outstanding question is, is that how have we got here? What did that particular handing down of this message imply? What changes did it bring to the message? What uh, new light did it throw? And that's a question that is refreshed at every instance. Mm-hmm.
0: Do, you, do you have any texts that seem to have notes from sort of generations, you know, like, you know, from you know, passed down to children over and over?
1: Only one. Um, and it's the one I mentioned, the the physician to the king of France, mm. who passed it down to his son Mm -hmm. who was a noted humanist and and both sets of annotations survive the others um i guess in the monastic reality you just really don't have offspring you pass it down to the next students Mm -hmm.
0: were any of the um the commentators women no none okay so so (laughs) apart from your book like even in the wider wider realm you haven't come across any female
1: i suppose some of the anonymous ones might still turn out to have been women Hmm. Uh, there is nothing in those notes that suggests um anything regarding the gender i suppose that's that's what i'm saying there's Hmm. nothing that suggests that they might have been women as opposed as opposed to men Hmm. um and um would it have mattered um I doubt it. It really was always about the thought. Mm-hmm. Um, it would be lovely to, to see that or to find out one day that one of these were, were women.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. Was there anything in, in your research or the work for this book that had a strong emotional impact on you, uh, either positively or negatively?
1: I think when the annotators write in the margins, Oh, reader, spare a thought for my soul. Um, that's a little, a little aside, and it doesn't really matter, does it? Because it's not about the the text. Mm -hmm. But, um, it really tells me, wow, this, this guy really counted on someone reading this way down in time, way down the centuries. He almost counted on me sparing a thought for the, for his soul at this point. And, uh, I confess I always take time to end up
0: prayer. Huh. Interesting. Actually, that makes me think about, you know, I, it's always interesting to think about the age of these books and how many generations, you know, nowadays the books we have, you look at your book, you know, it's maybe 10, 20, maybe 50 years old, maybe a hundred, but, but these texts, have have lasted for so long it's amazing to think how many hands they've been through um I don't know if you want to comment on that that's just sort of an aside um
1: it, um i think it's it's uh part of uh, what draws all antiquarian booksellers to to this job really is this sense of uh, of thrill of at being part of this material handing down. Uh, I don't own books. I don't have them. I don't buy them. <laughs> oh. <laughs> I just, uh, I find, I find it incredibly fulfilling to find them and match them up with their next owner and, um, and cover my this little part in the history of this book, um, by simply being a, a convector. Mm. It's, it is quite, you know, emotionally intense mm. to feel. Uh, that you're part in the story.
0: At what point in time did, um, did you have antiquarian booksellers maybe logging the, the ownership, the line of ownership of, of important books? Or anyone, in fact, not just booksellers, but, you know, where did you, where did people start, um, keeping track of that?
1: When did people start collecting books?
0: Or mm-hmm. keeping track of, you know, this book? owned by and then sold to and owned by you know what you know sort of a line of provenance is that the right word
1: yeah yeah, yeah. um i guess uh, an attention to provenance of books that are dear to the owner mm-hmm. has always been the case always been the case you find it in the uh, you know in 15th century books uh people note how much they paid for this book where they bought it on the fair in frankfurt and i paid Um, so there is a a self-conscious sense of ownership from very early on Mm -hmm. Um, and now all this attention to the material uh, history of the readership really has brought to the birth of very sophisticated websites that allows you that allow you to, to track the passages of ownership for the most important books and that clearly the idea is to uh, extend this as much as possible to all books printed in the um, 15th and 16th century.
0: Mm-hmm. How extensive are the details of, of books? Like, how, you know, does it get, get, I imagine it gets down to number of pages and sort of a physical description just to make sure the book is, you know, what, what is described? Because I imagine some people might try to forge or create you know fake copies
1: yes yes we have that we do um it doesn't do much good to the trade does it to, to know that um uh, there is forgery on mm-hmm. the other hand um the association of antiquarian Bookkeepers is, is a is a worldwide organization mm-hmm. that does, uh, uh, you know a lot of quality assurance mm-hmm. work all the descriptions written by members of the association have to be quite meticulous. And when you buy a book from any member of this association, mm-hmm. the physical description has a contract, um is like a contract. This is what you're buying. If it yeah. turns out to be, you'll get your money back.
0: Wow. Wow. I guess I shouldn't be surprised, but wow, that's a, I can imagine that's a lot of work.
1: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> but it's good work. It's fun.
0: Yeah. But I guess now you can just, um, take pictures of like every page and in every angle of the book. And that's helpful, I suppose.
1: Yes. I mean, you have to be uh, realistic and, uh, you know, quite economical. Um, you mustn't kind of be led, uh, astray by, um, this, this, uh, worship of the page you know many antiquarian books are worth maybe two three hundred dollars mm-hmm. um and um i i mean here at quaritch we deal with uh, a very very large range of oh. value mm-hmm. i can't really spend many many hours looking through every single minute detail of a very cheap book but for you know important books when the interest is there and especially when it's important for future reference that a peculiarity should be recorded than Quaritch. Mm. We've been here since the mid-19th century and our descriptions are still quoted in library catalogs.
0: Mm. Cool. So you've already mentioned a little bit about your goals for the book. Um, what else would you like the book to do for readers?
1: I'd like for the book to make the readers curious. I'd like for the book to be dust exactly the opening of of a window the beginning of a journey um the um i'd say the little prompt that will inspire them to look at books physically in a different way and uh, really if possible go and spend time with your local bookseller they have the most fantastic stories to tell mhm
0: what could uh what could scientists like modern scientists people working on the space program and interested in astronomy and all this stuff um what do you think they can take away from, from your book?
1: I guess from a scientist perspective, I think it's important to mature the awareness that the, the way they ask themselves question is historical. It comes from somewhere. There may be another way to ask themselves a question. So I guess uh, what you get from the book is uh, a prompt to questioning yourself. Why am I? framing my inquiry in these words Mm -hmm. oh yes i do i do that because it's been handed down to me Mm -hmm. and i received it that way would there be another way of framing it so i guess like many other messages from the past it's just really a a check on your on your own critical thinking Mm
0: -hmm. i agree i agree i certainly think that as well i mean that's why i'm interviewing you about this this topic for for the technology um podcast were there any difficulties in getting the book finished or published
1: no no i mean it, this happened in the times of covid but uh very you know seamlessly i have to say marty gross and michael ryan of the new york historical society really bent over backwards to to make it happen uh, oh. a great photographer was uh able to to do stellar work in mm-hmm. uh you know somewhat reduced circumstances so um no it's it's been a thoroughly enjoyable experience
0: sure if you want to show some pictures from the book um you can go ahead show viewers listeners won't oh, be able to see it but viewers can see um any of the things i think uh,
1: i think this image mm-hmm. is uh, perhaps one of the most telling because it shows you the variety of um, annotation. It could be interlinear in between the lines.
0: Hmm.
1: It could be marginal. And, you know, within the marginal, there would be different sizes, different, um, in a way, kind of hues of colour, and a few diagram-like things in the middle, just to show that, in the way that a modern web page is designed to get the eye to identify immediately what level of interpretation you are offering, mm-hmm. what type of information you are offering, this um, annotator was doing the same, you know. So this is where I do this, mm-hmm. this is where I do that, and this is where I ask my questions, and these are the chapters. So in a way, a very uh, visually efficient way of communicating. mm
0: mm-hmm. So you mentioned some of your future projects. Uh, what, what are you working on, on currently?
1: As a book dealer, I just, uh, you know, with my colleagues, we, we are trying to run the business in the COVID time. Um, at the moment, we are concentrating on early books, uh, and, um, uh, English literature. We have, um, uh, a long-standing tradition of selling good English literature. Mm-hmm. Myself, personally, I am, um, still Completely committed to annotated books, and especially annotated books of the sixteenth century, mm-hmm. the thought of the Renaissance, and so all my colleagues know that um, that is my turf they yeah. <laughs> very generously uh, give it up to me um, and uh, with the Marty Gross Foundation, I hope to you know cooperate uh, again in the future for similar projects without mm-hmm. similar projects. The foundation has worked, um, really to convey the relevance of the thought of ancient philosophy into the present. And that's so very much in line with my passion.
0: Okay. Um, where can people find, um, updates on your work or your thoughts, anything you're working on?
1: I guess email. I'm not very good at social media at the moment, uh, quite overwhelmed. But uh, Bernard Quaritch, the business I work for, mm-hmm. um, we are open five days a week mm-hmm. and uh, I work there. So we welcome any any friend, any contributor.
0: Uh, how do you spell the name of the shop?
1: Bernard Quaritch. Mm-hmm. And it's Q-U-A-R-I-T-C-H. Mm-hmm. Okay. He was a, yes, he was a 19th century German who came to work in London mm. and founded one of the biggest antiquarian booksellers.
0: Nice, nice. Um, okay. Um, that's all the questions I have. Do you have any parting thoughts or words?
1: No, just I am, uh, really looking forward in anticipation to the day when we open the exhibition next september at the new york historical society and i really hope that uh, people who have not heard of aristotle before or just heard of him really in passing would not be put off um it's um the whole point is to approach the general public mm-hmm. with the thought of this amazing amazing thinker
0: mhm and you, so the exhibit will be september 2021 is the plan yes Okay. Okay. Well, thank you very much for speaking with me.
1: It was a pleasure. Thank you, Chris.
0: Thank you. In the next episode, I speak with Cesare Barbieri about the search for extraterrestrial life. Space dock the subscribe button to catch that episode. Thank you for listening to Technology and Space. If you want more interviews with space scientists, space historians, and technology experts, or daily space and science book suggestions, Check out technologyandspace.com and follow me at Spacewalks Money Talks on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube, Spacewalks MT on Twitter, and this podcast, Technology and Space. If you want interviews with military historians or daily history book suggestions, check out warscholar.org and follow me at warscholar on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, at Chris Alvarez, War Scholar on Instagram and my podcast, Military History Inside Out. If you want interviews with writers and creative people or daily fiction suggestions including sci-fi, fantasy, horror, film history, gaming, and more, sign up for my newsletter at fullcontactnerd.com and follow me on Chris Alvarez Full Contact Nerd on YouTube, Chris Alvarez FCN on Facebook and Twitter, Chris Alvarez Sci-Fi on Instagram, and my podcast, Full Contact Nerd Interviews. Thank you for listening, and I hope to see you again soon.